When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Understand what I have done to you. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Last week we discussed and talked through the passage preceding this one. And one of the things that was kind of a secondary part to the parable, the parable that Jesus lived out in front of the disciples in the upper room in this occasion was the washing of feet. I call it a parable because it's a true life event, an action, a physical representation of a spiritual reality. Jesus is not, as we're going to see today, commanding us to wash everybody's feet. Jesus is rather commanding us to be the servant of all men. And part or secondary to that in the passage that preceded 12 through 20, where we were last week, I believe it also gives us a physical picture, a physical living out of what Paul explains in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, where Paul says that Jesus... Though he was equal with God, did not hold tightly to that equality, that Shekinah glory, the dwelling in the Holy of Holies. He didn't hold so tightly to it that he wasn't willing to humble himself. Lay that aside, is the literal Greek. Lay it aside and take upon himself flesh, the flesh of a man, and become a servant, a servant unto death, even the death, the humiliating death of a cross. That at His name, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that He is the Lord. Now, I said that this passage in John is John's version of that same truth. And if you'll look at it, it's there. It says that when Jesus... I just want to review over it because the first part of verse 12 completes the thought. Okay, 12a completes that uh, part of the passage. Look what it says. In, um, in verse... Two, it was during the supper. And then verse 3, Jesus knew that he was God and that everything had been put into his hands and that he was about to go back to God. And so in verse 4, here comes the parallel with Philippians. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment. The parallel might be in Philippians that that. Glory which he enjoyed with God in heaven. That's what he laid aside. He did not lay aside his divinity when he came to the earth, nor any of his power, any of his knowledge, any of his uh, attributes, we might say, his character. None of that was laid aside when he put himself into the form of a man. Okay? 
He is fully God. What did He lay aside? His glory. His outer garments. He laid that aside. Why did He lay it aside? To be a servant. To be a humble servant. Look what it says. In verse 4, the physical example of the truth, the spiritual reality, is that he poured water into a basin, he wrapped a towel around himself, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. He took the lowest position of a household servant. A Jewish slave would not have done this, wouldn't have been allowed to do it. A Gentile would have been forced to do this. Friends might have done it on occasion to show respect and honor, but very rarely in the Jewish culture did a Jewish man stoop to wash the feet of anyone. It was the most humiliating service possible. He laid aside his garment and he became a servant, the lowest of servants. Just like in Philippians. He laid aside that equality, that dwelling. He laid it aside and put on the form of a man, of a servant, a humble man, even unto death on a cross. And then we see in verse 12 the completion. At his name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, having completed the work of salvation, he now has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does it say in verse 12a? But that after completing his service, he put back on his garment and he resumed his place. He sat back down. There is a physical parallel to the spiritual reality that's being shown to us of the utter humility and servant attitude of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is key for our understanding of today's passage. That's why I reviewed it for you. Because if the the question that Jesus is posing is, if I, the Lord and teacher, did this for you, should you not be doing this for one another? If I set aside the glory which I had with the Father, put myself in the most humblest form of a man, died the most humiliating death of a cross, if I was willing to do all of this for you, what keeps you from serving one another? Why do you think so highly of yourself, we might hear Jesus saying. Here, in fact, Jesus said that the rulers often of the Gentiles lorded over their people. They lorded their rulership over people. And when Jesus was talking to the disciples about their attitude toward people, He continually called them to be humble servants. Listen to just a few passages in way of introducing the idea of humble service as a Christian. First of all, in Luke 14, 7-11, listen closely as I read. Now He told a parable to those who were invited to the banquet, when he noticed how they all were choosing places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give up your place. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Jesus says, don't be like that. Always thinking highly of yourself. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. 
Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Peter understood what Jesus taught later in life, we know, because in 1 Peter chapter 5, he said, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he might exalt you. Don't exalt yourself. Humble yourself under God and let Him do the exalting in due time. Secondly, we read in a passage like Luke 22, 24 through 27, this idea of humility and service. A dispute also arose among them. This is the Luke's account of what we're doing in John. Same event. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So here they are at the upper room at the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing He's in just within hours of dying and His most trusted men are more, argue, more uh, consumed with arguing over who is the greatest rather than thinking as a servant. He spent three and a half years teaching. Parents, don't grow tired of teaching your children. Jesus was the master teacher. And yet, three and a half years later, His men still don't get it. I mean, they're still in process. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I'm among you as the one who serves. In other words, he's saying, I know your custom, that the greatest sits at the greatest seats of honor. What I'm telling you is that worldly philosophy shouldn't be part of you. You should view the greatest among you as the servants of all. His example then, right after that, is what we're reading in John. I think he finished those words, then he stood up, took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, and bent down to wash their feet. That's why Peter said, not, not, No, Lord, you should not wash my feet. You're the greatest. You need to recline at the table. And Jesus said, No, the greatest is the servant, not those who boast in honor of themselves. The third passage I might draw your attention to in the Gospels and Jesus' teaching is Matthew 18, 1 through 4. Though it doesn't mention a servant or humility directly, listen to what he says the kingdom of God is. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They were always consumed with that question, weren't they? A lot like us. When we get there, what are we going to do? Who's going to be the boss? What job am I going to have? Jesus said to them a very profound truth. He called a child to himself, placed it on his lap. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like one of these little ones is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we see it practically, his teaching on humility and service. In Luke chapter 18, I mean Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And we won't read it for time's sake. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. What did Jesus exalt about the Samaritan? Not his high and lofty view of himself. 
That's who the priests were. They thought too good of themselves to stoop down and help this poor man who had been robbed and beaten. They might defile themselves with this unclean man. What did Jesus say about the Samaritan? He is a representation of what a true neighbor is, what a true Christian is. Why? Because he dared to stoop down and serve this man. He picked him up, placed him on his burden, his mule, carried him as a burden to the place, checked him in, paid his account, bandaged his wounds, and said, if I owe more, I'll pay more. Jesus' teachings are consumed with this idea of humble service. So, in this message series, it's a dying man's manifesto. It's only right that we have a message entitled, True Christianity Equals Humble Service. I'm not saying humble service saves you. I'm saying if you're saved, you will be a humble servant. Don't ever get them backwards. Sometimes we do that, don't we, in the way we think. We say, if I serve this person, God will be proud of me. If I go to Honduras and suffer, God will be proud of me. No. God already loves you and boasts over you because of the grace of His greatness in your life. He already boasts over you. You're already His possession. Now, because you are His possession, realizing what you've been saved from, you willingly become a humble servant. It's a character that flows out of the dwelling of the Spirit inside of us. The Spirit of Christ is in us. If He was a servant, therefore, the conclusion is, what? If His Spirit is in us and His Spirit was service, we ought to serve. It's logical when you think through it. It's not this worldly. It's otherworldly. This isn't a call to go buck up and try harder. Help the little old lady across the street. Rake your neighbor's leaves. Those are all fine and good. But don't, do not fall into the trap of of counting your service. It ought to be that our lives are so wrapped up in displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ as humble servants that we can't distinguish one act of service from another. It's every day. It's all day. Everything we do becomes about being the lowest and being the humble and being the servant. You see, it's not about bucking up. It's not about working harder to earn our way to heaven. We're in heaven, seated with Him in the heavenly places through Christ. Therefore, the Spirit of Christ is in us and we serve like Him. Okay, so we see that this teaching consumed Jesus' teaching in general. Hopefully, with just these selected passages, it's clear that true Christianity is personified through personal service. Humility is the calling of every Christian. Not the few, but all of us. Service is the calling of everyone, not the pastor and the deacons. Okay? It's all of our calling. And so we come to this passage. Let's look here at this passage closely. First of all, we see that we must serve one another as Christ our Lord and Teacher served us. We see that in verses 12b through 15. He says, understand what I have done to you. I know that it's posed in uh, uh, interrogative, the, the question. But it... It really reads, if you read it in the Greek, it really reads more like, less like a question, more like a statement. 
Understand this. Jesus is imploring them. Understand what I'm doing. Don't miss this. This is crucial to your future as a Christian, as my followers. And then he uses two terms of honor. Teacher, master, rabbi. The most exalted of the positions in the Jewish nation was this position of rabbi. More well thought of by the common Jew than anybody else. They respected and revered their teachers. You call me teacher and Lord. A statement of his divinity. A statement of his divinity. You call me Lord. And you're right, he says. If, if Jesus did not know himself to be the Son of God, this is the great opportunity for him to say, now you call me teacher and Lord, but let me tell you, I am your teacher, I'm not really the Lord. But he doesn't correct them, he establishes them. You're right. So that if your Lord, your God, and your Master, your Rabbi, bowed down and washed your feet, then what should you be doing? Do you see that? We are to serve one another as Christ has served us. Without thought of what it costs us. Without reflection over how many hours are involved. How much pain is involved. How many times we might face rejection. Jesus served the twelve knowing that one of them was his arch enemy. Not his friend. Can you imagine... He washed Judas's feet. I mean, he knows Judas is his enemy. He knows Judas will betray him. Yet he still humbly served him. It shows how hard and depraved our hearts really are, doesn't it? That the Lord of glory can stoop down and wash a man's feet, and within hours, that same man can betray him for a few pieces of silver. Anybody that argues there's good inside a man needs to take reflection on these kinds of passages. Because Judas is not the exception. He's the rule. But for the grace of God, we all would betray him just the same. So we see we are to be servants to one another as Christ, our Lord and teacher, serves us. He was a humble servant, it says in verses 14 and A. 14 part A. If I then your Lord teach you. We have an if-then statement. If I, then, your Lord and teacher, washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus gave us an example, he says, of serving one another. And we're to follow this example. This is where people miss it, I think. It's easy to do. You're reading along, you hear him say, I'm giving you an example, do as I do. And you think, where's the bowls? Every church service. This is a sacrament. Notice the little word, as I do. As I do. Translated, it looks like he's saying you ought to be washing each other's feet. In the English, that's the way it reads. But when we see it in his words, he's saying you should be doing like this to one another. Not that you should be washing one another's feet, but you should be serving one another. That's the point. You see it. It jumps off the page when you notice that his speech is not about washing feet, but rather about serving. Some churches have wrongly interpreted this passage. It's easy to do. I'm not ridiculing them. They think they're following this passage to the letter. 
But that wasn't Jesus' intent. Do this as, do as I am doing. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Serve one another as Christ has served us. Secondly, we are blessed when we serve as Christ served others. Sometimes we struggle with this part of the equation because we don't like to talk about rewards for our Christian work because we've got this false humility that says, oh no, I I don't want to be rewarded. Well, we shouldn't speak in a way that the Bible doesn't. The Bible implores people to work for reward. Did you know that? The reason you shouldn't avoid the suffering and service is because when you avoid suffering and service, the Bible promises you are avoiding the greatest treasure laid up in heaven. God never, never, ever says it's wrong to be motivated with a sense of reward. It's just not wrong. It sounds good to say I'm not motivated by reward. But in the end, it's not true. You are. The key is, what reward are you laboring for? Are you laboring for the recognition of man or the recognition of God? Because Paul said, at the moment you begin to labor for the recognition of men, you've then ceased to serve God. Are you laboring so that you might have a bigger mansion in heaven? We're going to get to that passage in a few weeks. Hopefully it will change our perspective about the gold-laid houses we got waiting on us. <laughs> you looking for a bigger dwelling place with full of gold and rubies and all the finery of the world? That's what you... No. You're looking for the reward laid up in Christ, which is in heaven. He is your reward. He is your reward. I think of... Those who have lived this passage out, serving their fellow man, they come to my mind. Amy Carmichael, born in a family there, she could have lived an easy life, an easy life. Could have found a husband of high society and dwelled in the States and been safe from all harm. And yet she jettisoned all of that to serve the poorest of the poor, the temple Girls, the little girls that served in the temple as prostitutes. That's who she rescued, took into her orphanage, and gave her worldly life and goods so that they might know Christ. Why? Because she looked for the treasure laid up in heaven. What is laid up in heaven for us? The inheritance that we gain in Christ. Don't tell me we don't serve for reward. You better You just need to make sure the reward is Christ and the inheritance which He offers, not simple rewards of the earth. And so we do labor and serve one another, and the promise is a blessing. This is one of two Beatitudes in John. If you understand these things and do them, you will be blessed. Classic Hebrew formula here. If you do this, you will be blessed. If you obey, the, the, the good of this law will be given to you. If you disobey, the curses of this law. Jesus is speaking in this language. You're going to be blessed. The Puritans called it happy. 
Now, there we, we have a problem, right? Because we've defined happy in our generation. Not very well. Happy. What does I mean by you'll be happy? That's literally what the word means. If you do what I'm doing, Jesus is saying you're going to be happy. We've equated happiness with a smile on the face and a little giddiness in the step and everything's going well. I'm not sick. My kids aren't sick. I got a house. I got possessions. Life's easy. I'm happy. Don't worry. Be happy. We've made little slogans of it. That's not at all what the Bible means by happy. That's not at all. What does it mean? Well, I would say it means joy. Joy in fulfilling the call which Christ has placed on our lives. That's how I would define it. The joy of knowing that you are living in the purpose of God for your life. That's an internal happiness which the world cannot buffet, they cannot take away. How can a woman like Lottie Moon die under 90 pounds in weight, having starved herself for the people of China? How can she do that and yet consider that she's done nothing? She's sacrificed nothing. Because the happiness, the joy that comes with knowing you're in the will of God, serving as He has served, satisfies all the longings of the soul. You are happy. You are satisfied. We are most satisfied. God made us, as John Piper says, creatures that seek fulfillment and happiness. And the reason is because He knows the one who's most satisfied is the one who finds his satisfaction in God. So the passage is true. Those who serve like Christ serves are happy, blessed, rewarded. Third, we see that we persevere in God's grace because he knows those he has chosen. I find it comforting that even in a passage about service, John shows us that Jesus pointed out his electing Power. There's some debate about this, whether he's speaking about choosing the disciples to fulfill the role of apostle and service, or whether he's speaking about eternal salvation, which he is choosing them for. But I fall out on the side of he chose them for salvation. This is why. Look at the passage. I'm not speaking, verse 18, of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. So, why do I fall out on the side that he's speaking about their eternal salvation, that Jesus elected? Jesus is sovereign in salvation. Why, is I, why do I believe that? Because Judas was also chosen for the role of a disciple. Right along with Peter, James, John, Matthew, he was chosen. But notice he excludes him in this statement. I didn't choose all of you. Well, yes, you did, Jesus. You chose all 12 of these men to be your disciples. And Jesus would say, that's not what I'm talking about. Ultimately, I did not choose Judas as my child. He is serving a purpose for me and a role for me, a function for me, but he is not saved. Judas, like Saul in the Old Testament, 
was chosen for service without being chosen for salvation. We need to get comfortable with that idea. We are all God's creation. Therefore, He can choose us to fulfill the roles He sees fit and yet still not choose us all for salvation. And that's what's before us. Jesus is saying, I sovereignly chose. I know the ones I chose to be my children, to persevere in grace. I'm not talking about all of you. Then he moves forward. And he shows that this, this is a fulfillment. The fact that Judas, one of the twelve, will betray him is a fulfillment of Psalm 41.9. Psalm 41.9 says, He who ate my bread lifted his heel against me. Like a horse that lifts its heel before it kicks, it strikes. That's what he's saying. I fa- you know, I'm not a horseman. Chuck Wood could tell us more about this. But it's got to be, you know. Kind of a little disheartening. You just fed this animal. You're in the stall with it. You're feeding it. You're cleaning it. You're you're doing everything right for the horse. And you go to walk out of the stall, and he lifts his heel to strike you. And that's that's what Jesus is drawing. That's what the psalmist is drawing on. That fact that that he the psalmist. Being a man of war, saw this happen in the camp over and over again. And he uses it in his own life that the one who I'm, I've protected, given shelter at my table, maybe Absalom, maybe some other, has raised his heel to strike me. And Jesus says, ultimately, that psalm is not about David. It's about Jesus. Because I fed Judas for three and a half years, and now he dares raise up his heel and to strike at me. He is my enemy. He hates me. And so we see that Jesus says, this is fulfillment of the prophecy which was spoken in Psalm 41.9. And finally, Jesus points out that the prophecy of his betrayal is being pointed out to encourage the disciples. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so that when they happen, you can be encouraged. What does he mean? In other words, Jesus said, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I give my life for the sheep. I can lay it down and I can take it up again. He said that in John chapter 10, right? He's about to die. And on the outside, it's going to look like he was betrayed by one who was supposedly loving him. He was taken into the Roman custody, handed over to the Jews, back over to the Romans, and hung on a cross. He didn't do any of that stuff. How can he say he laid down his life of his own accord and he can take it up again? They're going to find courage in the fact, in the moment, outwardly it looks as if he's been betrayed into the hands of men and the men have done as they will. But ultimately, this is a fulfillment of the Word of God. It's fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus seeks to, in the moment, the last ones of his life, encourages men. I want you to believe that I'm God. So when these things happen, you'll remember that I told you they were going to happen. 
I'm laying my life down, and I will take it again. Finally, in this passage, in verse 20, we see that when we receive God the Father, we, we do receive God the Father when we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Truly, truly, amen, amen, calling attention to close this passage. I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. So, whenever the gospel goes forward to the nations and they receive that message and they receive the one who brought the message, then they are receiving Christ himself. When your neighbor across the street who you know to be a lost man, who you pray for, who you labor with, who you serve, and who you share the gospel with, then receives you, he's receiving Christ. What is he receiving? He's receiving the message, the gospel message. Not simply taking you into his home physically, but taking in your belief as his belief. And when he does that, Jesus says, he's receiving me. And when he receives me, he ends by saying, he's received the Father who sent me. We close by saying, humble servants are sent out by Christ himself, commissioned. Listen, you're here and you're saying, I just don't know what meaning my life has. I don't, I don't know what talents I have. I'm, I'm the least of the least. Good. You're the most prepared for service. Jesus said, it's the humble servant that I send out in my name. And what's the great and high purpose of being sent out in his name? Because when, he, when you go out in his name with the gospel on your lips and coming out as the fragrance of your servant life, when people receive that, they receive Christ. When they receive Christ, they receive God. In the end, their eternity hangs on the fact that we are humble servants. Don't leave saying, I'm going to sit in the lofty place. Leave saying, God, see fit to make me the most humble among my brothers. The least of the least. The servant of all. David Livingstone on his deathbed is quoted as saying, I have given nothing. He lived his life in Africa for the natives to know Christ. Many received him. In receiving him and his message, they received Christ. Receiving Christ, they received the Father, eternal life. And yet at his death, he wasn't boasting about his work. He was saying, I've done nothing. All these years, I've... I've, at the end of it, I've, I've really lost nothing. I've, I've done nothing. May we at Grace Fellowship apply this text and say the words of Jesus. When he told his disciples, when you have done everything I commanded you, simply refer to yourself as a, as a servant. Because you've done nothing but fulfill what I commanded you to do. The Christian life is not climbing the corporate ladder. The Christian life is humbling oneself at the base 
of all men. So that some might receive us, the message we bring, the Christ we preach, and the Father who sent him. Let's pray together. Father, as we draw near to your table to take this communion.